I lost my job and with COVID hitting now, there's no recruiting, so I can't get a job. A bit of an empty feeling, really. I just feel like I've worked so hard to get to where I was and now back to square one again. I've lost my flying dream, but yeah, I've lost something I've loved. Welcome to Career Relaunch, the podcast dedicated to helping you reinvent your career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and truly enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have decided to step off the beaten path to reinvent their careers and do work that matters. We talk through their unique personal stories, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you understand what it takes to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is going to share his story of transitioning from being a commercial airline pilot to a truck driver following the recent collapse of the airline industry during the coronavirus pandemic. Afterwards, I'll share a few of my thoughts on how to pick up the pieces if the career you imagined for yourself suddenly disappears. Today, I'm speaking with Aaron Leventhal, whose lifelong ambition was to become a pilot. Based in the UK from the age of six, all that he and his twin brother would ever talk about was airplanes and how they wanted to fly when they grew up. At the age of 13, Aaron joined Air Cadets, the real beginning to his flying bug. He then joined the British Army in 2004 as a craftsman in the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers and eventually became a civilian heavy goods vehicle tanker driver to help fund his flight training expenses. In 2018, Aaron finished training and started working for Flybee as a first officer, only to be made redundant a year later in March 2020 when the pandemic hit. He now works for Tesco, driving trucks to deliver household essentials to supermarkets during these challenging times. But he hopes to eventually return to the world of aviation in the coming years. Now, the reason why I wanted to get Aaron onto the show was because so many of you have written in to tell me about how your careers have been adversely affected by the pandemic. So I wanted to feature someone who's also been hit pretty hard in his career by recent events, but who's also found a way to quickly pivot. So if you've been dealt a blow in your own career for whatever reason, I hope you find this conversation reassuring, inspiring, and most of all, to those of you who have recently had the rug pulled out from under your career, a reminder that you're definitely not alone. You can get all the show notes from today's episode at careerrelaunch.net slash 71. Aaron spoke with me from Swansea, Wales. Good morning, Aaron, and welcome to the show. And thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me in the middle of your very busy schedule. Good morning, and thank you for accepting me on your show. So I want to talk to you about a few different things today, Aaron. I want to go all the way back to your childhood and talk to you about how you became interested in becoming a pilot. I know you spent some time in the British Army. You also driving a tanker driver for a while. I do want to start by just getting a glimpse into what have you been up to the past few days and what have you been focused on in both your career and your life amid everything going on with the coronavirus? In the last uh, few days, I've been working as a Tesco driver. That's a supermarket in the UK. It's a heavy goods vehicle. I'm doing mostly night shifts at the moment, which is quite a, a strain on my sleep pattern and having a child. It's uh, maybe two or three stores and uh, yeah, delivering uh, food to keep the, the country up and running, really keeping those shelves stocked up for the British nation. And thank you for doing that. And for those listening from outside the UK, Tesco is the UK's largest grocery supermarket chain by market share. And they've got nearly 4,000 stores in the UK. I order my groceries from Tesco. So also want to extend a personal thank you to you for what you're doing. Can you tell me about 
your daughter, how old is she? And what is she up to these days now that the schools are closed? Yes, it's been quite difficult to try and entertain them. <laughs> it's the time's going on and uh, they're getting bored. But the, the schools have been really good. They've been uh, handing us out homework to do via our online app, keeping us informed of what's happening next. So uh, yeah, her name is Belle. She's coming up to seven years old in uh, July. Yeah, so we're just getting really, uh, really frustrated with the situation. It's quite difficult with, with work and looking after your child. And we haven't got no uh, sort of care for her or anything like that. So it's, it's just myself and my partner. It's been difficult. Yeah, and we're, we're recording this in early May. And as context, so the UK has now been in lockdown for several weeks. You mentioned that you're working the night shift. I actually have a very good friend of mine who used to work the night shift at an airport in Philadelphia. And I know it can be really mind dizzying at times. What's it been like for you to be working the night shift? It's been a bit of a shift from what I was doing before. We start roughly around about 6.30 in the evening, and it's usually finishing 6.30 the following morning, which is a full-on night shift, working straight through. It's difficult, but um, I know that I'm doing it for the good, and that's what's keeping me going throughout the night. Well, we don't always do this on the show, but I actually want to go all the way back in time to your childhood when you were, I believe, six and you first became interested in flying. I'd love it if you could just kick us off by telling me a little bit about your childhood and how you became interested in flying, and then we'll move forward from there. Yeah, like you said, Joseph, um, started at the age of six, uh, me and my twin brother, we'd go and fly little model airplanes and build little model airplanes, and our stepdad would take us to the air shows, and that was kind of where it really kicked off for me. It wasn't until I got to the age of 13 in nine months where I could finally go and join my local air training corps, which is known as Air Cadets. And I was there for about five years. And that was really where um, the bug of flying really kicked in for me. And at that moment, when you were 13 and you were part of Air Cadets, were you thinking at that moment, hey, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do when I grow up. I want to be a pilot. Is that what was, what was running through your head? Yeah, well, I already knew that before I came to Air Cadets. But uh, being at Air Cadets confirmed that's exactly what I wanted to do. As soon as I, as soon as I took that first flight, 13 and nine months that was it yeah that's where you get the flying bug and it never left by the age of 15 i did my very first solo flight and at that point for somebody who would be interested in becoming a pilot what would then be the typical path and what did you end up doing there's different routes you can take but if you're young enough like between 13 and 19 years old you can go and join your local air cadets i recommend that it's free flying and it really tests if you really want that career before you go spending your big bucks. Uh, for me, after Air Cadets, I started to work through what was called the modular route. There is an integrated route or a modular route. The integrated route where you can do it in a very short period, you have to have a big lump sum of money, maybe 120,000 pounds upfront. But the way I did it was what worked best for me, and that was to work and pay for it. Pay as you go, really, so just bits and pieces here and there. So you go and get your PPL first, which is your private pilot's license. You must have that, and that's 45 hours. Once you've succeeded that, you can then make a decision whether you want to go onto the airlines or if you want to keep it as a, a general aviation pilot where you can just go out and take your family and fly rounds in little single engine airplane. So if you wanted to go be an airline pilot, this is where you've got to start building your hours up and it gets expensive. So you're looking at like 100 hours piloting command of total hours, 150. Then you've got to go and do some exams, which is about 14 exams for your airline transport license. That took me roughly about 18 months because I was working full-time. What were you doing at the time? 
I was working as a tanker driver. So I was doing roughly 12 to 14 hour days with an hour commute on each end of that as well. So it was very good workload management to get through something like that. You don't get much time to study at home, but I used to take my study manuals with me and stick post-it notes all over my lorry just so I can revise all the time. Oh, wow. Once you finish those exams, that's when the fun starts, really. If you start flying, you can go and start your commercial pilot's license. Uh, that's another course, which is about 45 hours. And then it gets even more expensive now. We're going on to twin engine aircraft. So we're flying multi-engine airplanes. In the UK, I was paying £600 an hour. It goes on to you start going into simulators. And then you're ready to go and uh, apply for your uh, first job. It still doesn't end there. So very, very in-depth, very elongated and quite an investment of time, money and effort. Exactly. I mean, this is, that's, that's the way I chose to do it because it works best for me because I was working. But if you've got the money up front, it can take two, three years. I'd imagine a lot of people don't have that kind of cash up front as a teenager. And I know that you also spent some time in the British Army. What, what were you doing in the Army and how were you balancing that with being a heavy goods vehicle tanker driver? 2004 to 2006, I was employed as a Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineer. So I was actually a vehicle mechanic at that time. It was the British Army where I gained my qualification to drive HDVs and dangerous goods. Um, I then later used that when I left the British Army as a civil job to earn the money to fly. But whilst I was in the British Army, I mean, it was an amazing experience. I would recommend it to anybody to go in, into the British Army or in any army. It really builds on the foundations of your career. You've got the core values. You know, you've got demonstrate courage, discipline, integrity, and you, selfless commitment. You gain responsibility, independence, and you know, building up in your teamwork. You know, that all sets you up for life. And I'm, I'm really glad I went in there and did that. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing experience. And at the same time, I know when we spoke before, you mentioned that at some point you realized that it was leading you away from what you truly wanted to do, which was to become a pilot. I'm curious to hear how you ended up coming to that realization. I went into the British Army hoping that I'll transfer over to the Army Air Corps. So it was a way of trying to get into flying, but it became apparent that that wasn't going to happen for a long period. So I made the decision to leave the British Army and um, do it my own way. I wanted to fly and that's my vision. It always has been. So I wanted to get back on my path and follow it, follow the dream. So you're an HGV tanker driver and you're doing that to build up your savings to pay toward flight training. Can you just give a glimpse into the typical day in your life as a heavy goods vehicle driver when you're driving these huge petrol tankers down the road? What's that like and what does a day look like for you? I live about an hour and 10 minutes away from the, the depot where I, where I drive the Arctic from. So it's a good hour and 10 to get there. And then my day starts, I say I was on a night shift. So I usually arrive around about half past six in the evening. We go in, we check in, we sit around and wait until the job comes up, which could be a good hour before you go out. Uh, once we go out, we uh, go and find our unit, which is the, the front part of the Arctic. And then you go and connect it up to your, your trailer, which is already loaded for you. Uh, it's a very straightforward job. And then you just um, you go over the way bridge and off you go to your uh, first supermarket. And then when you get there, it's, uh, the, the tricky bit comes into play when you've got to start reversing these articulated lines. Once you're there, yeah, you deliver the food. Uh, you offload it yourself and with the assistance of one of the door staff there. And then when you sign the paperwork, you return back to the depot and off you go again. This is why I wanted to choose a job like this, just so I could keep the capacity to train as a pilot. 
I guess something I've always wondered is even as a child, I remember being in the car and seeing these huge trucks go by and there's normally um, typically a male driving in the front by himself. Does it ever get lonely driving those trucks? And like, how do you keep yourself occupied on the road? Initially, no. But as the years went on, it does, especially with petrol tankers, because there's restrictions. You're not allowed to have any sort of electronic devices or personal electronic devices, PEDs in the cab with you because with the uh, fumes of the fuel, especially petrol, uh, it can be very disastrous. So the rules are no phones allowed. So we can't even call on anybody. But um, the trips, what we were doing with um, petrol tankers, it was the aviation side I was doing. So it was delivered jet A1, which is airplane fuel to all the airports. So the, the runs are quite short. So you never really got lonely. It was a good time for me to bring my, my revision notes with me. That was the only way I could do it because I knew when I get home, I was going to be absolutely exhausted or my daughter was going to be around me. So it's actually a quite a nice escape to go work and start revising. I know when we spoke before, you mentioned 2009 being a major turning point for you. And I feel like we, we have to touch on this because it's such a big part of your story. What was happening in your life at the time? This is about a year now into where I finally started my modular training towards my airline pilot license. On the 19th of April, 2009, unfortunately, I had a big setback. Uh, my twin brother who passed away suddenly. See, this was absolutely devastating to me and my family. How old was he at the time? We were 25 years old. It was well, life-changing to see the world differently after that, really. You know, and you realize that life is short. And I was more willing to take the risks, especially like getting big loans and credit cards, which I was a bit apprehensive about. But once all that happens, I just thought, you know what? You've got to be more adventurous in this life because we're not around for long. So that's, that's really opened up my eyes. If you're willing to share what happened with your brother. It happened leading up to his death. It was about three years. And unfortunately, he, he fell into depression. And uh, it took maybe three or four attempts of him attempting suicide. But every time he'd do it, he would ring me. Nobody else, just he should ring me to ask. I don't know what he's doing, exactly what he's saying, but it was exactly what his approval or something, or he just wanted a, a cry for help. But every time before he attempted suicide, he would call me first. And uh, maybe it's for me to go. I always stopped it. And then the last time he didn't, he just literally, uh, he just got on with it and he, he hanged himself. I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm just trying to imagine, this is your twin brother and you guys grew up together and had dreams of becoming pilots. What ran through your head when you heard that news in that very moment that your brother had committed suicide? Is there any way to put that into words? I remember the, the moment very clearly. My world just fell apart at that time. Numbness, the world stopped. I just broke down. There were no words to describe what happened at that particular moment with others and just shock, disbelief. Even though the years leading up to it, I kind of knew that something was wrong. And I thought I had my mindset to sort of be ready for that moment. But no, I wasn't. Not at all. What do you think has been the toughest part of losing him? Not being able to share my experience, should I say our experience, of flying. We talked about it for all those years before he died. I never even managed to get him in the aircraft. Not once, not even fly beside me. And that's, that's 
you know, when I fly, sometimes I just look over to the left seat when I was, was wishing he would be sat there. But, you know, I never had the opportunity to take him flying. I sometimes find that certain events become dividers in our lives where you are a certain person before an event and you're a very different person after that event. I'm imagining that this must have been one of those events for you. What has changed for you pre and post losing your brother? I think before losing my brother, I wasn't willing to take as many risks as I have. Maybe I wouldn't have gone this far through my training. I'll never know. But after he passed away, I took the risks. I got the loans. I got the debt to go with it. And that's something I probably wouldn't have done maybe before. So just being resilient, grabbing my personal control, rebuilding myself after the event, and then getting back into my flight training as soon as possible. I mean, the show must go on stay focused. That's, that's how I got through it. I'm a very driven person. That's how I've got this far. Thanks so much for sharing that, Aaron. I'd like to shift gears a little bit here and now talk about your time as a pilot. I know eventually, I think it was around 2018, 2019, when you, when you actually were moving toward this dream and achieving this dream of becoming a pilot. Can you share what that chapter of your career was shaping up to look like? I was accepted to an airline called Flybe in the UK, which is a regional airline, a regional connectivity. I was there for about 13 months, and unfortunately, we, the airline collapsed on the 5th of March this year, which is 2020. I do want to talk about that and what's happened when you were made redundant. Before we do that, though, I, I would like to talk a little bit about your time as a pilot, because I know that this is a dream that you had, and you achieved it. And what was it like the first time you, you climbed into the cockpit and took your first flight where you're carrying passengers from one place to another? The first experience, it was overwhelming. Well, I just couldn't believe what I was doing. It was actually happening. I'm flying a big jet, you know, lots of thrust, you know, going down a runway, you rotate and off you go into the sunset. You do five takeoff and landings, and then that's it. You're ready to go with your passengers. Huh? So uh, you go into line training, you're still training with passengers on as a first officer, the captain's experienced guy. Yeah, it was to have my first passengers, absolutely amazing experience. And then to start talking to your passengers as well, informing them how we're getting on, the progress of the flights. It just, it's so unreal. And some of the routes we were flying, but especially down to Milan, going over the mountains, it was snow, and it's just absolutely scenic, really, really beautiful experience. And so I've flown Flybe before because, as I mentioned to you before, I used to live in Southampton. In the Southampton airport, Flybe is one what used to be one of the carriers there. And as a passenger, I, I guess the only time I really see a pilot is either in the terminal when you guys are walking by us in the gate area, or maybe maybe I'll see the back of your head as we're boarding, or you know if you go to the bathroom or something, or or if I if I'm lucky, I get a chance to say thank you to you as we're deplaning. Can you just give a quick behind the scenes glimpse into what's really going on up there in the cockpit while all the passengers are just sitting back in the cabin, chilling out and relaxing. With Flybe, as I say, it's quite short sectors we're doing. We're doing maybe four sectors and they're quite busy, busy days you know, up to your long haul flights where you might have up to 16 hour flights. The workload can be a lot less than what we were doing. Um, it is a very um, diverse and dynamic environment that we live in, especially in the cockpit. I'll give you an example. Once we, we get airborne, we're going through our checks all the way up through to the cruise. Uh, when we're in the cruise, 
we've got the, the captain and the first officer, we've both got our different roles. One of us would be pilot flying and one of us would be pilot monitoring. So there's always one pilot who's flying the aircraft. And there's always one pilot who's monitoring that pilot and systems. You take it in turns, each sector. So one sector would be, say, from Southampton to Milan. And then the second sector would be from Milan to Southampton. So I may fly down, the captain may fly back. So as a first officer, uh, if I was pilot monitoring, I was to go through system checks. We're doing timing checks, fuel checks. Uh, there's plenty of stuff to get on with. And especially in a short period of time, it's a very fast-paced environment. Unless it was long haul, it's more relaxed. But I really enjoyed our type of flying because it just kept you on your toes and you never get complacent. You just get in, you start your cruise and then you're starting your descent pretty much within five minutes. So you're in the cruise for five minutes. There's lots of pressure, lots of challenges, but it's exciting. We're communicating with the cabin, talking to our passengers, uh, also talking with our cabin crew, uh, talking with air traffic control. That's a very busy environment to be listening out on. You could be listening to all the other aircraft in the area. It's, yeah, it's very busy, multitasked and multi-talented job. Yeah. Is there any misconceptions that you feel people have about being a pilot for an airline, either ones you've heard from other people or even ones that you had yourself? The biggest one is everybody thinks that the airplane basically flies itself. Yeah, people say, oh, the autopilot takes off and lands these aircraft. There is aircraft out there that do do that, but um, the aircraft I was flying, we would have it in autopilot when we passed a thousand feet above the ground. So it's much more smoother and more pleasant for the, the passengers when the autopilot takes over. But takeoff and landing is um, fully down to us, the captain and myself. That's really interesting. I remember way back in the day, I don't know if they still let you do this, but you could tune into a channel on your headset as a passenger where you could listen to the air traffic control communicating with the pilot. And I was always impressed by how much chatter there was. Like there really wasn't a whole lot of silence. And uh, there's a lot going on behind the scenes up there. Yes, especially around uh, the UK. The transatlantic flights, uh, they're, they're the quieter ones because you just, once you go over the pond, over the ocean towards America, it's a lot more quiet. You're using different frequencies, HF frequencies. But around the UK, we're on the VHF frequency and it's, you listen to London control, Scottish control, and you can hear everything going on. It's, it's a really, really busy environment. You've got to stay engaged and listen to what other pilots are saying because it gives you good situation awareness. But you're also doing your work in your, your own space in your cockpit in the flight deck. So it's, like I said, you multi-talented. You just end up getting used to listening to all this chatter. <laughs> Got it. Okay, so Aaron, you're, you're a pilot now for Flybe. You're flying airplanes, you're living your dream. And then you mentioned earlier that a couple months ago, you were made redundant from Flybe in early March, 2020. What happened and what was it like to hear that news for you? Well, as you can see from our discussion, um, it took a long time, maybe 10 years to get here, but my whole life has been working towards this dream of flying. And on the 5th of March, when the airline collapsed, it felt like the rug was pulled out from beneath me. Initially, it was a shock. I went through all the emotions, worry and anxiety. What am I going to do for money? How am I going to get back into flying? Yeah, so I was devastated. Uh, I, I stayed loyal to Flybe right until the end. There were signs of there was problems with the airline. So some people started jumping ship and going over to other airlines. But I thought, no, I'm going to stay loyal to Flybe right until the end. And unfortunately, the risk didn't pay off. Uh, I lost the job. It was made redundant. And that was it. I packed my bags and then I moved from Birmingham back to uh, Cardiff. 
it's a kind of a triple whammy for me. I lost my job and with COVID hitting now, there's no recruiting, so I can't get a job. But on the other hand, I've also lost my license as well now. It's expired. So oh. it'd be going to have to pay another £6,000 to go and renew my license when the simulator is reopened and the training centre is reopened. So yeah, it's been a triple whammy and it's just been one bit of bad news after another. But um, like I said earlier on, I'm quite a resilient person. I'm flexible to change. I've got back in the lorry. I'm getting back on with it, back on the road, keeping money coming in, helping the nation out. I'm looking towards the future now of getting back into the flying career. I've spoken to so many people, Aaron, just in the past few weeks who have had what you described, like some version of a triple whammy where it's everything is landing at once and no good news is coming in. What was it like for you to move from being a pilot in an airplane cockpit to returning back to becoming a driver? I'm interested in hearing your views on that because I guess there's a couple aspects to this. There's returning back to what you were doing before achieving the dream. And then there's also finding a way to make ends meet at this really challenging time. I guess I'm just curious to hear more about what that process has been like for you. I've kept a plan B as a backup plan, you know, going back to a lorry just in case. So I was always told it's always good to have an HTV license because there's always work out there for you. And uh, so I thought I kept it valid. I kept my licenses valid just in case anything bad did happen. And unfortunately, it happened. But fortunately, I had my licenses to fall back on. And I said, really, I to help, to help get through this COVID-19. <laughs> to go back to driving, obviously, the pace of life is slowed right down. You know, we're doing 500 miles an hour in a jet, and now I'm doing 50 miles an hour on a motorway. A bit of an empty feeling, really. I just feel like I've worked so hard to get where I, to where I was. And now I'm back to square one again. I've lost my flying dream temporarily, but yeah, I've lost something I've loved. But you know what, what, what's happened here is after I lose my twin brother, is this has prepared me mentally to go through this situation. Sounds like you've, in some ways, built up this muscle of resilience, having dealt with some major setbacks and just emotional loss in the past, which doesn't make it any easier to go through, but I guess it just helps in some ways to manage the situation and maybe soften the impact of it. I had to get back out there as soon as possible. It's, you know, we didn't get furlough from the company, so we had to, I had to get out and start earning some money to get by and can't live off air. But I'm feeling positive. I've got my licenses, I've got my hours, I've gone through all the training, so I'm feeling positive there is going to be light at the end of the tunnel. I just need to build a connection, maybe through networking. Uh, this may lead to some possible opportunities, like my LinkedIn post that I put up, you, uh, you, you've seen. Yeah. So I was very fortunate with that. I, I put a post up explaining I lost my job and uh, I've become a lorry driver. And it, it went out to 2.8 million people, which is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> when you posted that, because that's how I discovered you, Aaron, what did you think was going to happen when you posted that? And for those people who haven't seen it, it's like a side-by-side of you in the cockpit and then you standing in front of a Tesco truck on LinkedIn and just explaining what had happened. What did you think was going to happen when you posted that i just put the post up you know for my colleagues because i we all joined a group flyby ex employees i thought i put that post up as a bit of inspiration to them to all my colleagues to give a bit of an uplifting message just to maybe help them a little bit but when i woke up the following morning and it was on a million million views i was <laughs> a bit disbelief really i just couldn't believe what i was looking at 
that they are underestimated the powers of social media. That post, I, I come home from work after my third night shift of starting this, this new job. And I was led in bed. I just literally just typed it up, put a picture on and went to sleep. <laughs> I never expected it to go like it did. I didn't expect all the media to be chasing me for it. Um, right. Yeah, it's just absolutely overwhelmed with it. That's a good segue, Aaron. And, and just the last thing I was hoping to talk with you about before we wrap up, and that's just a few of the things that you've learned along the way of your very interesting career journey, both the ups and the downs. And I'm curious what you've learned about yourself having shifted into the world of aviation and achieving your dream of becoming a pilot, only to then have that quickly taken away from you and you having to pivot out of that world. What have you learned about yourself through this process? The way I've chosen to do my flight training was probably the most difficult way because it was I had to work a full-time job going through that experience. And I'm really, really proud that I did that, that way as well. So I could see that I had that drive, prove I had that drive. Being able to handle workload management as well, very well, you know, is to work all those hours and then to study around it. And it's just, it's not an easy game. How do you think this is all going to turn out for you, Aaron? I know it's a bit of a guessing game. Nobody knows what's going to happen to the airline industry, but any guesses of how you think it's going to turn out and also how you hope this will turn out for you? The airline industry is very tough and it does come back. We haven't been through something as big as this, but it is going to come back. It's just a matter of time, patience, and just keep my vision and be focused. And I'll be back as a first officer somewhere. Thank you so much, Aaron, for taking the time today to tell us more about your life as a pilot and sharing some glimpses into your very personal story and also your recent shift back to being an HGV driver for Tesco. And as I mentioned before, as someone who orders our groceries from Tesco, I just want to personally thank you for everything you're doing for the country right now. I also just want to wish you the very best of luck with one day hopefully returning to becoming a pilot again. Yeah, thank you very much, Joseph, for giving me this opportunity to come and talk to you and hopefully inspire some people. So I hope you heard some useful insights from Aaron about dealing with personal loss, bouncing back from career setbacks, and always having a plan B in place. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to talk about how I manage setbacks in my own career. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. So Aaron described how he's had to find a way to bounce back from some pretty significant setbacks in his life and his career. And that got me thinking about setbacks more broadly and how important resilience is during any challenging time in your career. Now, I've had my fair share of setbacks in my own career. And I thought I'd just share a few to give you an idea. Going all the way back to my college days, my very first medical fellowship at the University of California School of Medicine was a complete disaster. All of my experiments flopped. And even though this happened over 20 years ago, I will never forget how my postdoc supervisor berated me so badly that I even remember crying in the bathroom stall because I was so upset. During my first year after college, I had four different jobs, none of which really stuck. The next year, I only survived a few weeks at a PR agency, then ended up having to temp for a company where my job was literally to manually rename file names for them, which was completely mind-numbing. I did end up 
getting into medical school later that year, which I thought was going to send my career into a more promising direction. But as many of you may already know, if you're longtime listeners, I dropped out of medical school after two weeks, which was probably the biggest career setback I've had in my life because similar to what Aaron described, it completely derailed me from what I had thought, at least at the time, was my lifelong dream of becoming a doctor. Jumping ahead to what I do right now, when I first launched my career consulting business several years ago, the very first networking event I hosted in London that I thought was going to become a core part of my business offering was a complete flop. Barely anybody showed up for that. During the first three years of running this business, every single article pitch I sent into publications I wanted to write for were rejected. And even just this year, I've had all my in-person talks canceled as a result of the pandemic. I've also had some life setbacks, and just to share one example, a few months after getting married in 2012, my father tragically passed away, which really reopened my eyes to just how fragile life is, and definitely made me rethink everything about how I was running my life and career. I have found that most setbacks are quite personal, because they're the direct result of personal expectations, and when outcomes don't intersect with those expectations. Maybe one of the setbacks I just mentioned doesn't actually seem like that big of a deal to you. Or on the flip side, maybe they do seem like a big deal. It doesn't really matter. No matter what other people think about how significant the challenges are that you've faced, if you consider it a setback, if it makes you feel bad, it's a setback no matter what anyone else thinks or says to you. Now, I've found that when I'm dealing with a setback, I have to not only wrestle with the actual practical implications of that setback, but also, as importantly, if not more importantly, I've got to deal with the emotional blow and the psychological disappointment of things not going my way, which in some ways is half the battle and the tougher challenge, because if I'm not feeling great about where I am or who I am, it's kind of hard to then motivate myself to do something about it. Because setbacks are quite personal, everyone has to find their own way of processing them. But for what it's worth, I thought I'd share my own strategy of bouncing back from those moments in my career and life when things just didn't go the way I'd hoped. So three things that I do. First, I try to allow myself time to process what's happened before I rush to bounce back to give myself permission to feel bad for a bit because, well, I'm human. You don't always have the luxury of time when you've lost your job or have been made redundant or have bills to pay, but when something derails in my career, I do try to give myself at least a moment to assess exactly what's changed, what went wrong, and how I can approach things differently before I launch off and try to fix things. Second, I try to prioritize finding a way to elongate the runway I have to figure things out, to ensure I'm keeping the lights on so that I can focus on what to do next. That often means, just to take a very practical example, trying to find a way to ensure I have some way of keeping some income coming in to buy myself some time. That might mean moving to a plan B or taking a temporary job that isn't exactly my dream job or just doing some other type of work in the meantime. For example, with all my in-person talks canceled indefinitely, I've recently shifted over to hosting more virtual webinars. 
Finally, I try to remind myself that my ability to manage disappointment will have a direct impact on my future trajectory. Part of this is recognizing that I'm going to have setbacks and I'm going to feel disappointed with how things turn out at some point in my career. So it's not really about avoiding disappointment, but instead trying to adopt a mindset of resiliency to build up that muscle of bouncing back as quickly as you can. And what's worked best for me is to allow myself to process what's happened. So it's not really about avoiding disappointment, but instead trying to adopt a mindset of resiliency and to build up that muscle of bouncing back as quickly as I can. What's worked best for me is to allow myself to process what's happened, but then as quickly as possible to take some proactive steps, even small ones, to move myself forward. But yeah, easier said than done. Setbacks are tough. No one wants them. And at the same time, we all have them. So in some ways, part of being able to effectively manage your career involves deciding how you want to handle setbacks and recognizing, especially during times like this, that managing setbacks is a skill itself and one you absolutely can develop and strengthen over time. What's a setback you've had recently? Have you been laid off? Have you had a job offer rescinded? discovered your target industry or company is no longer hiring, had your work hours reduced either because you've been furloughed or because you're needing to take care of a loved one, or maybe you've just realized you've taken a job that's not right for you. Whatever the setback is, it's important to allow yourself to process it and acknowledge the specific impact it's had on you before you then come up with a realistic way to patiently but proactively move forward. How you deal with setbacks or any challenging time in your career is going to have a direct and significant impact on where your career goes from here. At the same time, it's also important not to be excessively tough on yourself when your career takes a turn for the worse because it happens to all of us. This brings me to a quote from Les Brown. Give yourself a break. Stop beating yourself up. Everyone makes mistakes, has setbacks, and failures. You don't come with a book on how to get it right all the time. You will fail sometimes, not because you plan to, but simply because you're human. Failure is a part of creating a great life. Stand up to it and handle it with grace because you can. So my challenge to you, if you've had a major career setback recently, either because of the pandemic or something completely unrelated to the pandemic, is to first give yourself some time to process it. Allow yourself to just feel bad for a few days or even a few weeks because that's an important part of dealing with any sort of loss. So yes, I want you to budget in a bit of time to not be hustling or figuring things out or trying to bounce back. But I also want you to decide when you're going to then start taking action. To literally circle a date in your calendar when you're going to try to move forward, not to figure everything out, but to at least start taking some small steps to begin exploring where you can go from here. Restarting is often the hardest part for me, but I really do believe that ultimately action opens up new opportunities. 
So I'm actually going to practice what I preach here, and I have decided that although I've tabled working on my book, and after taking a three-month hiatus from it due to the pandemic, I'm going to get back to writing it beginning July 1st, after I clear through a few other important tasks. If you are someone like Aaron, whose job has been directly affected by the pandemic, and you're looking for some resources to help you bounce back, I've compiled a bunch of useful job search articles and resources you might find helpful at careerrelaunch.net slash 71, where you can also find highlights from my chat today with Aaron and learn more about his unique journey. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash 71. Thanks so much for listening to Career Relaunch and a very special thanks to Aaron Leventhal for sharing his personal career story with us today from Wales. And Aaron, if you're listening to this, we're all rooting for you to hopefully get back into that pilot seat one day. This episode was mixed by Richard Pennington, electrocardiogram wrote and performed our original theme song. I'm Joseph Liu. I hope you remain safe and healthy during these challenging times. Be sure to thank those people out there in your community who are helping you stay afloat. And I'll look forward to talking with you next time.